Gracious God, we live in a world and we experience in our lives stones, hardened hearts. We pray that through your living word you might bring water from the rock. Bring us your life-giving waters and quench our thirst. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were here last week, you probably have deja vu. Last week, the Israelites were hungry in the desert wilderness, so they complained to Moses saying, you must have brought us out here to the desert to die. This week, same complaining, And same accusation, you must have brought us and our children and our livestock out here to the desert to die. The only difference is that this time they're thirsty, not enough water to drink. And God's response in in each case is the same too. In response to their complaining last week, God gave them manna. God gave them bread from heaven. This week, in response, God tells Moses to take some elders with him to Mount Horeb. I'll go ahead of you to the rock, God says. I'll go ahead of you to the side of the mountain. When you're there, take your staff and give the rock a good whack. And when you know it, boom, water, just gushing out from a stone. So first they were hungry, and God fed them. And now they're thirsty. And so God gives them water to drink. Like I said, deja vu. A repeat. The same pattern. They're out there in the desert escaping slavery in Egypt. They have a need. And God supplies that need. The problem is, though, that there is yet another pattern also. Each time they forget how it works. Every single time they forget. After all, they've experienced some pretty incredible things on their way out of slavery. In order to spring them from Pharaoh's domination, God first sent plagues. There were locusts, there were frogs, the Nile turned to blood. The Egyptian firstborn were all struck down. Then when they were finally released, God parted the waters of the Red Sea to escape the Egyptian army that was tailing them. Then there was bread from heaven, powerful deliverance after powerful deliverance after powerful deliverance, but still another crisis hits and it's all over. That's it. It's despair. It's over. It's the end. Every single time. One of the telling details comes at the end of this text, though. Moses, it says, names the place where he struck the water. Massa and Meribah, he says. I mean, you can just imagine the tourist brochures after it's finally got a name. Sleep under the stars. Refresh yourself in cool waters flowing straight from beautiful Mount Horeb. The two words, though, mean testing or trial. Testing or trial. And Moses names it that because it says that's where the Israelites tested the Lord, saying, 
Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? So here for the Israelites, every dead end, every crisis becomes a test. It becomes a court case against God. Here Israel engages in what modern psychologists call catastrophizing. To catastrophize is to envisage the worst possible outcome for something in the present or the future every single time. One psychologist says that falling prey to catastrophizing is like striking out in your mind before you even get to the plate. It can lead to failure. It can lead to hopelessness. It can paralyze us. And we can give in to despair. So Israel is big into catastrophizing. Each new problem makes them forget past mercies. Despite each past deliverance, one incredible act after the other, each new predicament is a catastrophe, which becomes a catalyst for doubt, which leads to hopelessness and an obstacle to faith. We're out of water, they say, so is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is one of those cases where we are, we as hearers of these texts are tempted to concentrate on the foolishness of Israel. It's like watching a horror movie, but instead of shouting, don't look in the closet, don't look in the closet, (laughs) at the person on the screen, we're tempted to shout, stop freaking out already, God's got it, God's got it, (laughs) because we know the whole story, of course. It's tempting. But the truth is that Israel here illustrates what suffering and fear for the future do to us. What they do to us and our souls. A couple of years ago, I remember chatting with a gentleman who was sitting on the church lawn. He was from Newfoundland originally, but then there he was, semi-homeless, living in a tent sometimes, shelter in the other, occasionally a couch. I asked him at that time if he'd like me to pray for him. And he politely declined, as I'll be honest, most people do. But then he started talking about how he grew up in the church, how he went to youth group, how he was a believer right into his 30s, and even thought about going to Bible college at some point. He had a family, he had wife, kids, great job. Everything felt great, and he was truly blessed for a long time. But then his marriage fell apart. He didn't say why, but he did say that his wife left him, remarried, and had full custody of the kids, and it had been years since he'd seen them. You can pray for me if you want, he said. You can pray for me if you want, but that was pretty much the end of things between God and me. You can pray for me if you want, but that was pretty much the end of things between God and me. Suffering makes us forget. It makes us give up. It makes us forget all the things we've overcome. We forget the times of joy and deliverance that we've experienced before. 
We may have escaped cancer the first time around, and the second time even, but that does nothing to change what it's like the third time it rolls around. Or on a, on a larger scale, the environment may have bounced back from degradation time after time again in the past, but does that mean it'll bounce back again? So no wonder Israel panics here, even with all this wonderful history with God. Because when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the middle of the desert, no oasis in sight, it's easy to become fearful, and it's easy to become hopeless. It's easy to give up on God even altogether simply because bread from heaven one day doesn't mean there won't be thirst the next, no matter how faithful we are. Suffering, our own, and of others, can be the biggest source of hopelessness in our lives, and it can be the chief obstacle to faith. It's true. It's absolutely true. It's true, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's true, but it doesn't have to be that way. You see, like the Israelites, we tend to look at texts like this and events in people's lives and wonder, where is the miracle now? It's all fine and dandy to have this good stuff in the past, but where is the parting of the Red Sea now? Where is the peace when there's war? Where's my miraculous healing when now that I truly need it? Where's the bread from heaven? Is the Lord among us or not? Where's God when God's people wander around thirsty? But these stories aren't primarily about telling us that if only we trusted enough, we'd never be thirsty. The great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it like this. He says, The Bible does not everywhere assume God is present, he said. But the Bible knows the places where God's absence is overwhelming. And this story, the story of water from the rock, this story, he says, is about God's inexplicable capacity to do well-being in a world that is shut down. This story is about God's inexplicable capacity to do well-being in a world that is shut down and closed and hopeless. This story is about a God who, like water from the rock, bubbles up unexpectedly in places where everything else has run dry. So you've likely read about the fall of the late, great John Vanier, founder of L'Arche International, and someone who was called by many a living saint. I mean, he, I would put, a, put him up there in my list of heroes. <laughs> Until recently, of course. It came out that Vanier had sexually abused at least six women who he spiritually mentored. And many of us have rightly been shocked and angered by this event? How could someone who seems so good in every other way have committed such evil? But what's most saddening 
about this story is that it has tested many in terms of their faith in God and has turned many further away. If faith in God couldn't keep Jean Vanier from doing something like this, what's the point in God altogether? The whole incident's like a walking argument against Christianity. And it's moments like this, moments of God's absence, that cause us to ask, is the Lord among us or not? It's a faith-challenging thing. But a recent opinion piece by the Reverend Thomas Reese, a Jesuit priest, tries to put things, tries to put even this event in different perspective. A water-from-the-rock kind of perspective. Reese, a retired journalist, writes about how he was shocked and angered by Vanier's actions. And it seems to be yet another moment where goodness has, yet again, been overshadowed by human evil. However disappointing and heartbreaking it is, though, he says, it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us or cause us to lose faith. Our surprises, he says, instead should come from somewhere else. As a social scientist, he writes, as a social scientist, I am never surprised by sin, corruption, and conflict. I am a firm believer in original sin, for which there is lots of empirical evidence, although I don't necessarily blame it on Eve and the apple. For me, original sin is the reality that sins of the past provide fertile ground for sins in the present. Think slavery and racism. And sins in our time will make it difficult for people to be good in the future. Think global warming. What surprises me, though, he says, what surprises me is goodness, kindness, and love, which are signs of God's presence and God's grace in the world. Many people turn away from God, he continues, because they cannot resolve the problem of evil. How can there be a good God when there is such evil in the world? I have the opposite question. Granted that we have been struggling to survive ever since we crawled out of the muck, evil does not surprise me. I am surprised by the problem of good. Why is there good in the world? Given where we came from and the world in which we live, why is there love? Why is there self-sacrifice? These are miracles of grace. These are signs of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in the world. It is the Holy Spirit that pushes us upwards in our evolutionary journey beyond selfishness and sin to kindness and love. So, he continues, if you too are angry and depressed by the failures of great men, if all these failures are turning you into a cynic, don't let sin blind you to the presence of grace in our world. Instead, be surprised by love. Be surprised by love. There are moments in our lives and our world where it seems 
Like the Israelites, it seems like everything's dried up for good. The case of Jean Vanier is one episode among many. There are times when life is nothing but rocky and dry, where good is few and far between, too little to quench our aching thirst. It's true. It's true. But the deeper truth that there is, is that there is indeed goodness. In a world like ours, truth, beauty, goodness, and mercy, all of these bubble up from what appears to be the lifeless ground of creation from the earth, this third rock from the sun. It bubbles up like water from the rock. And what's more, this is who God is. This is what God does. Texts like this and moments like these, moments of deliverance, sustenance, healing, and mercy, these are more than isolated incidents of fleeting joy. They point us to a deeper reality under the surface of all things, waiting to bubble up at a moment's notice. All these things point us to a God who makes a way where there is no way, a God who delivers from slavery, who rains down bread for hungry souls without a single convenience store in sight, one who brings exiles back home, light out of darkness, life out of death, one who brings water from the rock, no matter how cold, hard, and dead that rock may be. So, no matter which quadrant of life's desert you're wandering, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter how thirsty you may be, know this, there is water in the rock, even if it's impossible to see right now. So don't give up, don't lose heart, don't give in to hopelessness. Instead, open your eyes to grace and be surprised by love. Is the Lord among us or not? The Lord is among us indeed. May these words be to you as Moses' staff reaching out to strike the rock of your hardened heart from which the water of life will flow. May it flow, and may you drink deep. Amen.